Church, this morning, we are going to be diving into the scriptures, and kind of in lieu of, of kind of, as, as Scott shared, we're going to be talking a little bit about a couple things that uh, we're excited about, even coming up this next week and over the next seven days. And I've titled this morning's message, uh, we're just in a standalone message this morning called Fasting and Finances. So we're going to be addressing these two topics and they kind of have to do with an encouragement that we're going to be making everybody at our church to kind of participate in. One of those being our seven-day church fast that's going to be starting tomorrow. And it's going to be concluding next Sunday. And then next Sunday is actually, actually our second annual uh, Heart for the House, which is kind of a, a fundraiser that we do yearly to support the projects um, in, the, in the calendar year that we want to see happen. And if you're kind of uh, like, hey, what are the things that we want to see happen, um, please check us out on YouTube. We have actually had a message called Team Sunday, where we kind of contextualize all the things that God had done in 2017 and kind of how the stage has been set for this next year. So if you want to take a deeper dive in terms of, hey, what are some of those practical things that we're going to be kind of supporting and raising money for, I would just encourage you to check that out. We're on YouTube. You can download our church app, which is on the App Store for both Android and iPhone, and that's a great way to stay connected. But this morning, um, we're going to be talking about two kind of Big topics, you know, big kind of like spiritual topics in terms of fasting and then finances, like generosity in terms of kind of how God sees that. And, and my goal this morning is to take those two ideas and to really make them really practical for every single person in the room. Everybody's journey looks different and everybody's steps look different, right? And, and my prayer kind of for us as we, as we do this and as we talk about this is that it would make the full transition in terms of, of, of what we want to see happen in our church. One of the ways that we measure success at our church is that there's a full transition from mind, heart, feet, right? And then we repeat that. What do I mean by that is sometimes information goes into our minds and it just stays there. But my hope is that, man, when we hear God's truths, when we hear about God kind of calling us into new places, stepping out in faith, that it would not be something that just hits our brain, but it would eventually transition to our heart. And then once again, it wouldn't just make us feel warm and fuzzy, but it would transition to our feet where we actually do something. And then not to just do something one time, but for us to actually repeat it and make it a habitual thing in our lives. Amen? And then finally, our application. The application for us this morning is I just want us, once again, to, 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 to identify and take next steps. I'm gonna, I want to start us off with a quote this morning from an author uh, named Darren Hardy out of this book called The Compound Effect that's kind of related to finances. But he, he has this great principle that I think really applies to anyone looking to kind of take a next step. Um, he says this. He says, small smart, small, smart choices plus consistency plus time equals radical difference. How many of you guys know that sometimes we want to make big, massive choices and expect our lives to be changed in like 24 hours, Right? But I love this. This, is, this morning, here's what I want to encourage us, is that small, smart, smart choices plus consistency plus time will make a radical difference. It'll make a radical difference in our churches. It'll make a radical difference in our community. It'll make a radical difference in this world. It really begins with those small choices and those small steps forward. So this morning, my, my prayer is that we would take those small step choices. That's the application for us this morning as we talk about these two Big topics. So this morning, we're going to start off with part one, which is all about fasting. Let's talk about fasting a little bit from a biblical perspective. So here we go. Uh, first and foremost, this is fasting. The goal of fasting is to draw nearer to God. That's the whole goal of fasting is, is drawing deeper into relationship with a God who loves you and desires relationship with you. But let's talk about the biblical definition of what fasting even is. You might be like, I don't even know what fasting is. 
The Bible defines fasting as this, to restrict food for a spiritual purpose. Um, and once again, when we kind of get confused about the goal of drawing near to God, what fasting can so easily become is just kind of like a glorified diet, right? I struggle with this. Sometimes I fast and I'm like, well, I'm really just looking forward to the physical benefits of just saying no to potato chips or, you know, something that you eat that you love, right? So I feel like the Lord coming up to this week has really spoken to me specifically about, hey, make sure that you're not just doing this for physical benefits. Let's, 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 let's contextualize this in a way where we can actually draw nearer to God. And here's what I love. This, this isn't just for the super spiritual. This is a, a practical discipline that, that we, each and every one of us, can have access to. But it's going to look different for each and every person. So there's a little bit of you personally that has to identify, hey, hey, what are ways that I can draw nearer to God as I fast or I say no to certain things and replace it maybe with God's presence in my life, with things that God is encouraging me to take part in. And I love it because Jesus doesn't say, if you fast, when he talks about fasting, he says, when you fast. So when it comes to people who are followers of Jesus, this isn't just like optional. This is just something that Jesus assumes becomes a part of our everyday relationship and spiritual vitality of what it means to live in God's presence and follow him. Amen? So for us this morning, we're going to do this. This is going to be on the calendar once a year for us as a church but, but I want us just to be able to take next steps for us to be able to understand and identify what are the, how do we make the, the discipline of fasting, maybe a, a deeper rhythm in our everyday lives, or what can that kind of look like? Because anyone and everyone is, can engage in this. And I'll say this, is, is according to the definitions that we've already given, we've talked a lot about kind of food, right? But how many of you guys know that there's other distractions that kind of create obstacles for us to draw nearer to God? One of them exists in my pocket. Come on, somebody. That sometimes it's not just about food. We live in a day and age where if the goal of fasting is to draw nearer to God, what are the things that are distracting us away? Sometimes, yeah, that becomes the food that many times we depend on. Other times, if we're really being honest, uh, media, social media, all I mean, we look at the way that media has an influence in our culture right now, and it has distracted us away from God's heart. We are less compassionate than we used to be. Come on, as a culture, we are less empathetic. How many of you guys know that compassion and empathy are, are rooted in the heart of God and the heart that he has for his people and in turn, how we can actually make a positive difference in this world? So there's things that can so easily distract us outside of just food. So once again, this is where it really gets kind of personal for us to kind of identify what it means to fast. If the goal is really to draw near to God, what does that look like for me, and, and, and we're going to talk about some practicalities of fasting, but, but here's what I know is that life weighs you down. Life causes us to get really spiritually sluggish, and what I love about fasting and what I love about even just setting apart a week of our calendar year as a church and encourage this is it kind of helps hit the reset button on our spiritual life for our soul to be refreshed, for our souls to be, kind of encounter God in a really intentional way, Amen. Fasting renews us. And we're going to look at the scripture specifically really quick in Matthew 9. And it's kind of Jesus, the way that he talks about fasting. Because throughout the Bible, we see this discipline of fasting. But I'm kind of interested in terms of, hey, what, what are, what's the way that Jesus defined it for us in terms of how we practice in this discipline of saying no to some, maybe some distractions or some things that we're relying on and replacing it and saying yes to more time kind of engaging with the God of the universe. Amen? 
So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to look at this really quick. Um, It says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, Then John's disciples came and asked him. So we're we're talking about not Jesus' disciples necessarily, not the followers of Jesus, but followers of John, referring to John the Baptist. Now, people followed John the Baptist, this guy who paved the way for Jesus, but not everybody had made the transition into Jesus' ministry, following him, right? So they ask, and they say, how is it that we and the Pharisees, these highly religious, oppressive people, fast often, but your disciples, your followers, Jesus, do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. And both are preserved. So we have Jesus kind of course correcting some religious behavior that was going on. And it's very interesting for, for if you were a, a Jewish person during, during this time, a person that's part of the, the tribe of Israel, the people of God, you participated in fasting, but there were some kind of cultural rules to how you would fast. And many times people would fast in terms of different types of celebrations or different types of events, right? Including one of them being prayerful and sorrowful repentance, meaning people often would, would, would feel guilt for things that they had done. And one of the ways that they would kind of uh, give back to God is they would say, hey, I'm going to fast. I'm going to participate in a fast. So um, in, in terms of celebration, it was considered inappropriate because of the sorrowful kind of nature for these people during this time. So if there was a wedding during this day and age, you could not, seven days leading up to the wedding, you could not participate in fasting because it represented something that was very sorrowful. So Jesus gives this illustration in these, in these verses talking about the bridegroom, talking about himself. He's like, hey, guys, I'm here. So the fact that in the same way if you fasted, leading up to a wedding, that's inappropriate. Well, guess what? The, the, the king, the bridegroom, yeah, he's here. The one that you've awaited for. Right now, this is a time of celebration. He's making the connection like, I'm God. I'm the awaited Messiah. So it actually becomes really inappropriate for you to demand us to be fasting when what he's saying, he's like, I'm going to leave. I'm, I'm going to leave. He's predicting his own death, his own resurrection. He's like, I'm going to be gone at some point. And at that point, fasting is going to become really, really practical in terms of staying connected with me. Amen? Jesus has come to offer real growth in his government righteousness, which is like when new wine is put into fresh wineskins. God's saying there's more. Jesus is saying there's more to God's heart than just religious activity. There's more to God's heart when it comes to staying connected than just doing something that represents sorrowful repentance, that represents sorrowful guilt. He's kind of reorienting what this discipline uh, represents for people that are following him. And you might say, okay, how do we know more about God's heart then? If it's about God's heart and chasing after him and his values, uh, that doesn't really give us much, that scripture. But as I many times encourage, when we look at the scripture, you have to look at the scripture in context. So what we realize is God's heart's actually really represented in the verses that come before this whole conversation with fasting. So really quickly, let's look at the scriptures leading up uh, to him having this conversation of of kind of reorienting fasting with these these people, these religious people. So it says this in Matthew chapter 9, 
verses 10 through 13, leading up to this. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's like, hey, why is this guy hanging out with bad people? Quote, unquote, bad people, right? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not healthy, the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I love that. And then it leads into this reorientation of fasting, meaning this, the mission of God's heart is to chase after people. So when we fast, guess what? It allows us to engage with God and acquire more of his heart. In turn, we become better lovers of God in relationship with him, and then that follows of us being better lovers of people who are the object of God's heart. Come on, somebody. So the part of fasting that we need to understand is that we're drawing near to God for a purpose of understanding what it means to understand that God wants to spread his love and allows us to be a vehicle to do that, to have a capacity to love people supernaturally, love when it doesn't even feel like we should. As Jesus said in a statement, loving our enemies. That's extremely difficult to do, let alone sometimes loving your best friends, right? We all have our moments, but God gives us a capacity to be filled with his power, his presence, and his love supernaturally. And fasting helps us get there helps us get to a place where we have a capacity to make a massive difference in this world. Amen? A great paraphrase of, of those scriptures, kind of just to summarize that I found in Matthew 9, 14 through 17, is this. Fasting is a way for you to celebrate the goodness and mercy of God and prepare your soul to expand and contain the fresh new purposes and work God desires to bring into your life. This isn't religious. Like many people were categorizing fasting. It has relational God purpose. Come on, somebody. God wants us to draw closer to him and in turn allow that bursting relationship that we have with God to burst forth into every relationship that we have, every piece of person of influence that we have in our lives, in our circles. Amen? So personally, God wants to expand his heart in ours, but I believe as well that God wants to also expand the grace that he has on this church as we do this together as a community. I believe each and every one of us is going to get some things personally out of fasting if we choose to engage with this. But here's what's beautiful about when we do it as a church. God wants to do something communal and stir something up new in this place. God wants to allow his presence to be unleashed in a way that becomes miraculous. Not just people getting together, but people getting together underneath the government and the power and the presence of a God who loves us and wants to see this world restored in his name. Amen? So this morning... Let's, let's get really practical, and let's talk about a couple or a few common types of fast. So let's just kind of got the other stuff kind of leading up to it out of the way. Let's just talk really practical. What are some common types of fast that maybe we can engage in this next week? There's three kind of, I generalize it in three main ways to think about fasting. Number one would be a normal fast, which basically is only water is consumed. Um, that's represented Elijah in 1 Kings uh, he does a fast 40 days of just water. Jesus does this in Luke chapter 4 during the temptation where he's out in the wilderness. He does a 40-day fast and only drinks water. So there's a biblical example and a precedence that's, that's used to show this. But how many of you guys know with busy lives, um, this probably is something you should use faith and, faith and wisdom with. Wisdom says um, if you're going to do this type of fast, uh, even for a week, uh, probably should get a uh, doctor's permission. You know what I'm saying? Um, just because many of us have different things that we're putting our energy 
towards. And this is something that if you're going to be really solitude kind of for the week, uh, would be something that you could engage with. But I would not really recommend this just even on a practical level to just kind of jump into. Once again, we're talking about small steps to engage with. But just to know, this is a great model that's kind of exampled where people placed a deep dependence on God by only drinking uh, just water, um, which is amazing, right? And then we have what's called a partial fast, um, where some foods are restricted. Uh, for instance, a juice fast. What is a juice fast? Consuming vegetable and fruit juices and water instead of solid food. Some include whey protein in their liquid plan as well. This is a popular and effective fast. Substituting liquids for one or two meals is an alternative. So kind of having like a just a fast where you replace kind of your normal meals, um, where you still kind of have that hunger deep down in your soul that reminds you um, that, man, there's a, there's a deep dependence that you're using during the week, uh, placing it on God rather than on the comforts that come with food, right? Uh, the Daniel fast, many people um, do a, what's called a Daniel fast. Uh, this is based on the fasting principles of the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapters 1 and 10. Um, Daniel 1 states that he ate only vegetables and water, and Daniel 10 states that he ate only vegetables and water, and Daniel, or, and Daniel 10 states that he ate no rich or choice foods as well as no meat or wine. Um, the foundation of the Daniel fast is fruits and vegetables, and there's actually a really helpful website. If you're interested in maybe more about the Daniel fast, just Google Daniel fast or daniel-fast.com. It's a great website with different recipes. Basically, no added sugar. Anything that comes from the ground is fair game. So no desserts, no like processed foods. Basically, we're talking about all kind of natural foods. Um, and it, it, man, I've done this before. It's, it's pretty darn difficult and it reminds you. You know what I'm saying? So that's what we would give an example of kind of a partial fast. And then also, um, which I would recommend as well, is what we would call a modified fast, which is abstaining from other distractions or kind of modifying uh, different forms of what we talked about. So social media, TV, etc., things that are kind of common parts of your life that you're going to say no to, uh, maybe for this next week, just so you can say yes to more intentional time with God. So just to give you practicalities of what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be doing kind of like a modified fast, kind of hybrid with a normal fast a little bit. So um, I'm going to make my phone dumb for the week, so I'm going to be turning off the data. So only phone calls and text messages, just because I've realized that this has become a deep distraction in my everyday life. It's time to hit the reset button. It's time to create more habits of health in my life that allow me to be more present when this has become an obstacle for me to be that. And then I'm also going to take a two-hour chunk during the evening uh, to eat, to eat a meal. So that's not like, hey, guys, we're going to Golden Corral and going through the buffet. You know, it's like, no, guys. Like, this is like intentional time of, like, I don't want to have the diarrhea for the whole rest of the week. You know what I'm saying? Um, anyway, so use wisdom as you do these things. Yes, I just said that. It's awesome. And it's very practical because I've been there. Hallelujah. Um, we are all about practicals here at PCC. Um, okay, so does that make sense in terms of kind of like the different forms of fasting? Just getting really down to the practicals this morning. Um, so the power of fasting, I just want to say this, has less to do with food than with setting yourself apart for a specific time for prayer, right? For, for, for worship, for getting into God's presence, taking steps forward in your direction, maybe in, in terms of a relationship with God that maybe you've never chosen to take a step with before. So I got some next steps for us in terms of what we can do, um, in terms of maybe some steps where you can kind of find your way and maybe how, how you can be involved in this. So number one, I would just encourage participate. We're doing it Monday through Sunday, so starting tomorrow, um, and then all the way up until Sunday after service, the fast is broken. So go to the pizza buffet if you want to. I dare you, you know. Um, anyway, and so basically it's like six and a half days. So I just encourage find, participate. 
just try this. I'm just, I'm really praying that maybe some people that have never fasted before are going to make a decision to fast um, this week for the very first time and see God break into their lives in a new, fresh way. Amen? Next thing I'd say is um, follow our updates by liking Ponca City Church on Facebook for daily prayer themes. So one of the big parts of fasting is let's partner fasting with prayer, some intentional prayer time. So um, actually, if you haven't already, you can bust out your phone right now. Go onto Facebook if you're on there and find us on Ponca City Church and like us. And basically, you'll get updates. That's probably the best way, to, honestly, to stay connected with our church with upcoming announcements and reminders is by liking our Facebook page. But this week specifically, we're going to be giving different prayer themes each day for us to kind of focus on. So in, in our times of prayer, we can say, hey, here's kind of the theme. We're going to focus our heart and our energy as a church church on and praying for this theme today. So we're going to be having those like each and every morning for us to pray and to kind of stay engaged, as well as some really helpful scriptures for us to kind of look in, look up and digest um, if you want to take that deep of a dive on it. Um, next is to be intentional, not religious. Um, so what do I mean by that is allow this to be really just time for you. I, once again, I, as your pastor, I can't decide what's going to be the best next step for you. That's, that's you identifying your own distractions, your own things that you're like, you know what, I can say no to this so I can start saying yes to maybe picking up my Bible for the first time in a long time. You know what I mean? Maybe just even meditating or reading a scripture or two a day. If you, you're just a person that's been like, yeah, the Bible's been getting a little dusty on the shelf. Or just like, I just, I, you know, I've kind of been familiar with the Bible, but I've never actually personally engaged with it. That might be your next step this morning. A next step for you this week in, in terms of how you're fasting might be saying, okay, my intentional time is going to be praying longer than a, a set amount of time that I've ever prayed before, and I'm going to do that each and every day. But you see what I'm saying? Just small steps where it's like we're inviting new rhythms of God's grace into our life where we see God making a massive difference. Um, maybe for you this is um, a reminder for you to take the next step of maybe joining a small group this week. Getting involved, contacting a small group leader and saying, hey, I need to take a step forward into deeper community with people at the church. Maybe this is for you. You're like, Man, I don't serve at the church. I don't have a job yet at the church. Where you're like, my next step this week is going to be, as I fast, is getting involved and serving on Sunday morning as we just kind of have teams set up to serve people and guests that come into the church each and every week. So once again, there's just, there, it's kind of a choose your own adventure in terms of what you feel like you're supposed to do as you kind of say no to certain things and say yes um, to new things and new rhythms of God's grace in your life. Does that make sense, everybody? And then lastly, uh, yeah, like four people. Great. Cool. Uh, uh, does that, so anyway, the next thing on the list is pray for the heart for the house, which we're going to get into. So here's, here's what I know. Here's what I'm praying. We're going to switch gears and switch topics really quickly. But my prayer, once again, uh, for this week is for us to understand that fasting isn't something that needs to create spiritual distance from us. I just pray that this morning we would feel empowered to understand there's a God of the universe who wants to engage with us. And when we start saying no to rhythms and saying yes to him and being intentional with this, God wants to shock us. He wants to shock our lives a little bit. He wants to surprise us. He wants to bring his grace and his goodness into areas of our life that maybe we didn't think possible. So, so I just would encourage us to engage in this discipline uh, this week. And I feel like we're going to see a lot of things on the other side that we're going to be celebrating because God, how many of you guys know that God chooses to supernaturally break into the natural of our lives because he is a good God. Amen? All right. Part two this morning, we're, we're shifting gears. We're moving on. Um, is finances. Fasting and finances. Yeah. People are like, yeah, money. You know what I mean? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about money this morning. And I, I love it because uh, Scott did such a phenomenal job of kind of uh, really kind of setting the tone this morning. 
Because not only are we doing a church fast this next week, but we're doing something we've only done one other time last year called Heart for the House, which is a Sunday where we're encouraging people to uh, financially engage in generosity. So this morning, I just want to talk in kind of a general sense, once again, get really practical about finances. Finances sometimes can be such a touchy subject in church because there's a lot of suspicion when it comes to like, what do churches do with all this money? And first and foremost, I just want to communicate, we are a church that has a heart to use the resources of God and to steward them in a way where we bless the community and we are a blessing to this world and this globe uh, that we live in. Amen? So first and foremost, I want to preface with that, but God has a lot to say in terms of what godly finances kind of look like. So I want to look at a specific example this morning in a story called The Rich Young Ruler in Mark chapter 10. We're going to read through this. It's a little lengthy, but hang with me as we kind of unpack it this morning. It says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Guy's like, I want to go to heaven. Give me that ticket to heaven, Jesus. Tell me what I need to do, right? Verse 18, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. I love this. Jesus is like, did you just call me good? Did you just acknowledge me as God? Because what I'm about to say to you, if, if you're acknowledging me as God, means that doctrine is about to flow from my mouth in terms of instruction. Come on. If you're saying I'm God, what I'm about to tell you is God-driven instruction. My heart bursting forth from my lips. I love that. She's like, you're acknowledging this, right? Because what, what about to come is going to be challenging, right? Verse 20. Or verse 19. You know the commandments, Jesus is talking. He says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud your honor, and, or, or you should not, def, uh, or you should not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, uh, honor your mother, your father and mother. Uh, where, where am I? Gosh, I'm, this is hard on my iPad for some reason. Whatever. So he's listing off the Ten Commandments, basically, right? He's, he's listing them off. Then we get to verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. <laughs> Whoa. Verse, verse 22, at this, the man's face fell. He went away because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are truly possible with God. And Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's a very difficult passage uh, to kind of in interpret and understand, but I just want to start us off by, by saying this, is that one of the things that we did research on in terms of our city and understanding how we wanted to reach our city is that there is a massive socioeconomic divide that exists in Ponca City. 
and I would beg to argue the surrounding areas, right? This is kind of a crux. This is kind of a advice that we've known to understand that we know is an opportunity to minister to, right? And here's what I know. That's locale, right? We're talking about the, the local issue, but how many of you guys know even in our world, there's an obvious inequality in the distribution of goods. That, 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 that sometimes possessions have a way to reflect a massive injustice in the way that people are, are abused simply because of the use of goods and, and, and financial stewardship, right? We know it all too well because we see it in our headlines all the times when we know and we sense that things aren't all, ought the way that they should be when we read the headlines, when we watch the news, and we see the massive ways that finances become oppressing and become a, a vehicle for evil uh, injustice to, to just rule and reign in the world that we live in. Economic considerations are translated into the ruin or termination of human lives even, right? That money and the selfish greed of people causes there to be the termination of the dignity and the fact that human lives are created in the image of God, right? Just for the love of money. Think about that scripture that says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? That unfortunately we live in a world where money becomes such a God that injustice begins to spread rampantly. But because of this and because of a sensitivity to the injustices in terms of the way economics are distributed... Um, we can slide so far to the extreme to create a prejudice against wealth. Meaning this, branding wealth on its own as evil and having or acquiring possessions and goods as bad. Um, so many take this scripture or can take this scripture that we just read and apply it to the understanding that obviously it's, it's, it's more spiritual uh, to be impoverished or obviously... Um, it's bad to be wealthy. So I just want to address this, these, these two questions, right, from the get-go as we talk about this general idea about financial stewardship, right? Is it bad to be wealthy? And is poverty spiritual? Because some people, um, and this might be you, kind of live under this idea that maybe it's better to have less, right? Maybe, you know, just because of some of these statements that Jesus has made. And I just want to recommend a, a, just a highly... Uh, this is like a book that I would just, it's like, it's just a must read. This is Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. If you want to take a deeper dive in terms of some of these spiritual disciplines we're talking about, talking about fasting in this book, but also um, there's, there's, there's a chapter that we're going to kind of zoom in on that in this book at the very end talking about this question, is, is poverty spiritual? And he kind of attacks this head on, and much of the content we're going to be talking about, we're going to look at a few quotes out of this book, just handles this topic so well in terms of a biblical worldview of economics, right? So this is actually available in our library. So if you want to take a deeper dive, we have several copies in there. So pick this up. Um, this is a great and phenomenal resource. I would recommend uh, any, any believer to read this book at least once during their life just because the late and great Dallas Willard is just a phenomenal uh, kind of con contributor to the body of Christ uh, through his life and, and, and what he was able to accomplish. So is it bad to be wealthy and is, is poverty spiritual? Let's just generalize and just answer this with a big whopping no. It's, it, it's not. Because the point of the rich young ruler in which we just read has nothing to do with the relative position of rich or poor, right? Actually, the point in what Jesus is teaching here is to simply teach and inform his disciples that it's not an easy thing to be rich and enter into God's government. Because your, your heart 
and your soul becomes divided between your love of possessions or your love for God. So easily can possessions or wealth or money or greed become the God and the aim for our lives. And so many times this can happen for us when we pursue careers or we have ambitious things that we want to accomplish in our lives, that sometimes things begin to kind of creep up and take precedence over having a relationship with God. Our truth begins to be through the lens of money, through the lens of this money God that we can so easily create. So rather than understanding of poverty being spiritual, what we need to understand is have a conversation about stewardship. Stewardship which requires possessions and includes giving is the true spiritual discipline in relationship to wealth. It's not about being good if you're poor. It's not about being bad if you're rich. It's actually about this word called stewardship. How do we distribute what we've been blessed with? The biblical emphasis that we see throughout Scripture is the use of goods, not their actual possession. The tension exists of the possession and use of riches versus having trust in the actual riches, right? We see this. We understand this when we look and we understand stewardship. So we're going to be talking about stewardship, three main kind of ideas, and lead and get really practical in terms of some next steps. So number one is this. Let's talk about godly stewardship with excess. If you're a person that has excess and you are blessed, how do you steward it? If you're a person maybe with a great salary, you've been blessed with a great job, man, God is, 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 come on, blessing you abundantly, you have excess. Godly stewardship looks like this word called blessing, using that to bless other people. And the reason that we bless out of our excess is because we recognize the idea that God is our source, that he is generous. In fact, that everything that we have is his. I love what Deuteronomy chapter 8 says. It says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. It's all about me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to, pr to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. We've got to recognize in a general sense that creator God even created the opportunity to have wealth. Everything comes from him. He is the source Everything that we have is actually God's anyway. First Timothy, it's not up on the screen, but I love this verse. It talks about, for we brought nothing into the world, and we could take nothing out of it. Out of the womb, we didn't have the bank account, the salary, the cars, right? We didn't have that, and we're going to be leaving the world the same way. So we need to think about that sometimes in terms of, man, how much emphasis do I place on holding on to my, my possessions? Proverbs 10.22, also not going to be up on the screen, but it says, the blessing of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. Once again, he's the source of all blessings. He allows us to be rich in himself, which actually is the thing that fulfills our soul, not the numbers in a bank account, right? He is the one who takes precedence in our lives that can actually fill the God-shaped hole that's missing and the purpose-shaped hole that's missing in our lives. He's the one that can fulfill that. No other thing can fulfill that, including possessions. But here's what we understand about uh, God, too, is that he's generous, even in, in terms of the fact that love gives. Jesus set the example in John 3.16. He says this, for God so loved the world, it's like the most popular verse of all time, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God is so rich in his generosity that he sent his son 
to die for us so that we could have relationship with God. I don't know if there's anybody perfect in the room this morning, but here's what I know. I'm not perfect. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I make mistakes. I'm, I'm, I'm sometimes subject to my own vices, right? My own devices, right? But God has come in with a rescue plan to not only forgive us, but to give us a hope and an understanding and a purpose in this world that we live in and to give our life adventure, to give our life a newfound, abundant life that God promises this side of heaven. But I love the example that Jesus, Jesus, God was so generous that he sent Jesus. Love gives. And God sets the perfect example for that. And there's this interesting part of this conversation in Luke chapter 21. There's a little story. It says, as Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's interesting that Jesus kind of highlights this story in the context. It's kind of like this break in the narrative where this is there, and then it just kind of moves on. And what, I love it because Jesus is helping us identify that, that true generosity doesn't come from having more and giving out of that more, but it comes from having a genuine heart. Understanding that genuinely as connected as a, as a vessel of God, how do I give out of my abundance? How do I give out of a place of, of sacrificial generosity that, that, that shows that I trust God, that allows me to understand that my heart is big and with my excess, it will be used as a vehicle to bless above and beyond because I'm a vehicle of God's grace and he has done the above and beyond for me. Danger becomes the almighty dollar, right? Whoever cannot have riches without worshiping them above God should get rid of them if that will enable him or her to trust and serve God rightly. Once again, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, It is not money or gain, but the love of it that is the root of all kinds of evil. Love when the Bible says in Proverbs, the prosperity of fools destroys them. Money can destroy lives. Personally, money in, in turn can destroy other people's lives, as we've seen injustices that exist around the topic of money run rampant throughout our world. Using your excess to, of, of resources to bless others represents genuine generosity. Amen? So we've talked a little bit about our excess, but okay, what about maybe those who categorize themselves uh, in the topic of having little? So what does that look like? And we're going to say this this morning, that godly stewardship, according to a biblical perspective, with little equals progressing, progressing, taking steps. If you're a person and you're like, I don't make that much money. I have little. First and foremost, um, look up the website globalrichlist.com and punch in your yearly salary or your wage and be humbled to understand that you are in the top 10% regardless. We, we, we crunched those numbers a few weeks ago. I can't even remember when we talked about this, but basically if you make minimum wage in Oklahoma, like you're top 10%. So sometimes we complain about the little we have, but we need to realize that we are blessed as a country even in terms of some of our economics and how that's represented, right? So let's just talk about this. Let's have a deeper conversation about godly stewardship if you're a person with little. Godly stewardship, when you have little, means you are progressing. You are taking steps forward. I love, I love this book, and here's a quote out of this book by Dallas Willard in The Spirit of Disciplines. He says this, while certain individuals may be given a specific call to poverty... And some people are. It's like, I'm going to live in an extended season of frugality because I feel like God's calling me to live in that season, right? 
He says, in general, being poor is one of the poorest of ways to help the poor. No one can give what they do not possess. If giving much is good, having much is also good. If giving more is good, having more is also good. I think to myself about what Jesus talked about in the parable of the talents. He talks about these people that he gives. There's this, there's this person who basically distributes different talents that people are to make investments in. And at the end of the story, there's people that made good investments. They, they duplicated. Oh, I had three. Well, now you have six. I have ten. Okay, now I have twenty. Well, there's one guy that's like, he has two or one, and he doesn't multiply it. He just buries it in the ground. And Jesus rebukes that guy because he's basically like, that's not good stewardship. You didn't take what I've given you, and you didn't move forward in it. You didn't make process. You didn't take a step forward in understanding that I have given you resources to be multiplied. You are a vessel to take these resources and then be a blessing. If you are a bad steward, you will not be given more. Ugh, that's kind of harsh. Let's keep talking about this, though. Because Jesus' teachings are designed to startle us out of our prejudices that we have. He's, he's creating us a way and a rhythm for us to step outside of our prejudices and step into a new direction in government and way of thinking. He startles us sometimes. I think about when Jesus said, blessed are the poor, woe to those who are rich. And we think to ourselves once again, well, it's better to be poor. But basically, when Jesus says this, we can understand that there's obviously this off-center way of thinking during that time where it was vice versa in the way in that society where people were treated. Come on. People who were rich were the ones who were celebrated. People who were poor were the ones who were on the fringes of society. So Jesus uses this illustration to shock and this off-centered value system to help people understand that's not the way my kingdom functions. It's not as clear-cut as you would like it to be. And he begins to shift and shock the system many times during his ministry. He confronts factors irrelevant in deciding who is well-off or not. A good question for us this morning as we continue is, what is God's best plan for utilizing the wealth of, of this world? We've got to think about that because God has to have a pathway in terms of economics and wealth because that exists in the world that we live in. And once again, God had many different things to say about people that had goods and the way that looked in terms of society that God desires. Once again, Dallas Willard out of the Spirit of the Disciplines, he says this, say we decided to give away all the money we had, where would the money go? It would go somewhere. Someone will continue to be affected by it. We must never forget that the riches of this world, whether they are to be regarded as good or evil, are realities that uh, do not just disappear if we abandon them. They will continue to exert their effects. Someone will control them, and the fact that we do not possess them does not mean that they will be better distributed. Hmm. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He said, to abandon the goods of this world to the enemies of God is to fail the responsibilities we are given at creation to have dominion, to rule over all life forms above the plants. That, that, that from the beginning, God has placed a responsibility upon creation to be good stewards, to have dominion, to distribute well in light of who God is. But how many of you guys know that there are principalities and forces in this world that brush up against the good that God wants to accomplish. 
And sometimes when we do not become good stewards of the things that God has given us, it's almost like we're allowing our hands to be wide open to give and distribute for those forces to use whatever vehicle they want to, to use that wealth that we have been blessed with. Dallas Willard also says, the role of Christian ministry is to embody and communicate the gospel of God's government to all and to prepare those who can stand in the crucial secular areas of the world to be religious caretakers of the world's goods. If taught well, such Christians within important secular environments will then be on the job to see to it that what needs to be done with the goods of this world is done as it needs to be done. Come on, somebody. That each and every one of us has a calling, a vocational calling, a place where we, our, our gifts are best fit to serve and if economics are involved, to then use those resources in a way that represent the government of God's rule and reign, his kingdom, his heavenly mentality about what restoration on this earth looks like. And here's my main point this morning is a greedy, covetous poor man is no better than a greedy, covetous rich man. One is not better than the other. But here's what I know. If you do not steward well in either camp, not blessing we're not progressing, you are a part of the problem. You are. Because we, this is something we cannot ignore and not take action in and not progress or take steps in or not take what we have and use as a blessing to be a vehicle to make sure that the economics that God has instilled within our care is taken care of to provide blessing, not injustice. Come on, somebody. So this morning, the micro scale of this conversation is that we need to be people that personally bless. Because when we personally bless with our finances, it puts the money of the Christian tag, and it puts the money where the mouth is, right? Some of us in the room this morning, maybe you've considered yourself a Christian, and you've weighed that banner for so long, but when it comes to financial generosity, you've been kind of hanging out in the wings. You're like, nah, I'd rather not. Like, I'm just going to kind of shove God's voice off to the corner. As we know that God has placed a massive stewardship conversation in our hands. Some of you in the room, uh, there's some, maybe something new that God wants to speak to you today. Maybe some of you, your, your mind's beginning to change because you've, you've always convinced yourself that, man, I don't need things. But God's actually placing an emphasis on you maybe taking some steps forward in terms of financial generosity because God wants you to be a blessing. God wants those resources in your hands because he has entrusted you to be a vessel of his grace. And then there's a, a kind of a more of a bigger macro scale conversation. There's a personal responsibility, but the macro scale becomes um, a conversation of what do we do as a church, you know? How do we allow our church to be a blessing, to be the ones that distribute the economics of what's being provided for this house and family to bless? And that's why we're having this thing called Heart for the House, right? And this is where I want to kind of get into the practicalities of what that's going to look like. But in order to have that conversation, we need to talk about godly stewardship for everyone. Godly stewardship for everyone, whether you are rich or you consider yourself poor, is this principle called tithing. Let's talk about tithing for a second because that's a very, once again, Christianese word. I didn't know what this was. Like when I started attending church, I was like tithing. You know what I mean? Tithing, what does that mean? It doesn't, if you don't know what the word tithe means, you don't know how to actually apply it to your life. Tithing means this, the first 10% of your income considered as God's or the king's portion. Saying, God, everything is yours, but I'm bringing forth my first 10% and acknowledging you as God and saying, allow this to be 
um, your portion. And where that's represented in the scriptures is Proverbs chapter 3 talks about the first fruits. Talks about bringing the first before God. And then in, Pro, or in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, as Scott referred to during, the, during our offering time, it talks about this encouraging of giving the 10% tithe. But once again, these are principles that were set up during, during uh, times, ancient times, right? During the ancient Near East, a culture that looks completely different in terms of the benefits of what we have as followers of Jesus today. But here's what we know. Jesus affirms tithing in the New Testament. In Matthew 23, it talks about you should practice tithing without neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. There was a bunch of religious people that were just jerks. They were jerks to everybody, and they were tithing, and they were proud of it. And Jesus was like, no, wait a second. You need to keep tithing and everything. That's great. But do not neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And then as we move on, and as we've talked about in our previous series on Acts, the early church in Acts affirms tithing, and as a community, they actually go above and beyond this to create a floor of 10%. And we know that the, the needs of the church and the community were met because people allowed tithing, that 10%, to become the floor rather than the ceiling. And we saw above and beyond generosity begin to burst forth in terms of people's witness of God. People were meeting people's practical needs, not just like, I'll pray for you, brother. Hey, be blessed, brother. It's like, no, actually, these people actually provided in a way where they were generous and people could practically sense and feel it. If you're stingy, you have a very diluted picture of Jesus for people to see. Come on. That's actually things that people feel on their everyday basis. Nobody likes stingy people. If you're a stingy and ungenerous person, people are going to have a hard time seeing the God of the universe who is the most generous of all. Come on, somebody. So this morning, let's talk about this in terms of our expectations as well, because here's what I know is that sometimes when people are like getting this conversation about generosity, they're like, oh, I'm going to give and God's going to bless me, 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 me. Here's what I know. God, when you give, isn't in the business of always blessing your vision. It's for his vision. It's not about you. God is going to use your generosity and bless and move forward what he wants to see come and burst forth, right? But here's my question in terms of injustice in our world, because stats show that there's Supposedly, 2 billion Christians who self-identify in the world. 2 billion. Like, what's the percentage of that? Like, 30, we're up, upper 30% of the world identifies as Christians. What would happen if those people all committed to 10%? Could I, could I beg to argue that world hunger would be solved? Could I think about some of the injustices that exist? God created a system that works. But for some of us on a personal level, we've just said no, 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 no. And we realize when we don't give and play our part, that it has a bigger effect on the injustices that exist in the world. God has given us a responsibility to be generous. We could talk about that on a worldly scale, but how many guys know that that just gets overwhelming? We start getting mad at all the problems in the world and what other people are doing. So here's why I want to zone it back into us. What would happen if as 100% our church committed to tithing? Just this community. The ones that are hearing this, sitting in this room, being maybe moved by the Holy Spirit to make a decision about generosity. You know what I would think happened? Can I just pitch some vision to you really quickly? Can I burst maybe the ceiling open of what this community and what this church could actually accomplish in Ponca City and beyond? I truly believe, come on, if we had the resources, we could be a centerpiece of a community. Come on. That this used to be a school, but we have a massive property to build a huge, massive kids structure where families, single moms could come during the week and use this 
and, and be a blessing. Come on. We could be a church that builds out a ministry residency center and one of our wings invites interns, invites the people that keep moving away from Ponca City. Well, people keep moving out. Our young people keep moving out. Let's give them a reason to stay. Let's train them. Let's equip them. Let's believe in them. Let's see the leadership potential from day one. Let's allow this church to become a centerpiece of the community that people are complaining about, families are complaining about. There's not enough to do. Well, let's be the solution because we have so much space and let's allow God's vision to begin to inform the capabilities of what he wants us to do. And when we train and we be a blessing, we will multiply this church, we will plant other churches, and we will have a global impact. Come on, somebody. That's our responsibility. That's God's vision, because he sees it. And some of us right now, we, we don't see it. But allow your personal part to play into the larger vision that maybe you can't see. But when you take personal responsibility, it plays into the bigger picture. Even as Scott shared earlier, you feel like you can only bring the sandwich, the sandwich matters because when you bring the sandwich, you understand that you get to begin to eat from the feast and the blessing of what God wants to provide. And he wants to do something big in this city, in this community. Are you ready for it? Are we prepared for it? Do we see the vision of what this church could accomplish if faithful people say, I want the resources to be in my hands to distribute? God wants to do a massive work. And this is why we've set up our Heart for the House Sunday. Come on, somebody. So here's our next steps in terms of finances. Each and every one of you got an envelope, and it's Heart for the House on each and every chair. Next week, we did this last year, we're going to bring forth kind of our commitments to the Lord and saying, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to take a next step. Once again, for some of you, it's your first Sunday. You're like, whoa, you know. It's like, hello, we're talking about money. We're talking about fasting. We, first and foremost, if you're a guest this morning, we want you to get comfortable. We're not asking you to, like, come next week and bring an offering. You know what I mean? We're not asking you to be a person that's like, I should just know tomorrow that this is where I'm. No, like, use wisdom. We want that to be a decision that you're comfortable with. And here what I would, here's what I encourage our new guests who are here with us this morning. Get comfortable. Don't feel like you, you need to, like, participate all in. All we're looking for is, is next steps. You know what I'm saying? So in this envelope, you have a little check boxes that hopefully provide different ways that you can kind of be involved, right? Number one is we just need people praying. So if you're a guest this morning, would you do this? Would you, would you maybe, if you're going to be here next week, just check this box and just say, hey, I'm going to be praying for the financial needs of this church. I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be a partner in prayer and believing for God to do big things through this community that's saying yes to God's way. Next thing on there is, it says, I'm making a commitment to follow the biblical model of tithing. Maybe you're a person that you've kind of been, once again, you've been hanging out in the wings and you've been like, yeah, I just, you know, I'm a Christian, I guess, and I've labeled myself with that, but in terms of finances, well, I, I can't afford it, or I can't do it. Trust God in this area. Please, trust God now. Because here's what I know. When the bank account gets bigger and the blessings do pour out, it doesn't get easier to give and to instill this discipline in your life. It just doesn't. Actually, it becomes harder. Because you realize you have more, and 10% seems like a lot more. But here's what I'm saying. So some of you might be like, okay, you're crazy. You know what I mean? Like, 10%, okay, Third box is this, and this has to do with this little insert that we've included. We believe so much in tithing. We believe in so much in the development and the spiritual development of your life and to seeing God burst forth blessings in your life. We have created something called the three-month tithe challenge. And it's based on that contractual agreement with God in Malachi 3. Test me. Test me. Here's what I'll say. If you're kind of on the fence about this, let this be your next step. Test him. What this is is basically saying for three months you're going to commit to giving 10% of your income. 10% of your income and basically 
if God, if you feel like God is not faithful or is not faithful after those three months to provide for your needs and see God break through in your life in the way that you thought he was going to, if God doesn't hold up his end of the bargain, money back guaranteed. We will give you all your money back because this is not about the money. This is about people taking steps in a direction towards the God of the universe and seeing God burst forth in amazing and miraculous ways. This is not about the institution of the church. This is about people seeing God break forth. But when we bring those faithful people together, we are going to accomplish something more than our wildest dreams could ever think possible. Come on, somebody. Yeah. I feel like I had something else to say, and then I lost it. So that's why it got awkward for a second. Uh, anyway, uh, and then, and then uh, lastly is if you're a person that, that, that you've been committed to as a tither, um, we just ask for you to pray about bringing an above and beyond offering. And can I just be honest with you in terms of last year? We learned some things about last year. We did this, um, but after we did this, we realized that our, our, even our like, kind of budget and monthly in- income was kind of all over the place. Because I think we had a lot of people that committed to the above and beyond offering, but maybe weren't committed to this yet. Here's, what, here's my prayer. Do not commit to an above and beyond offering. Commit to this if you need to. This is your next step. If this is you, you know who I'm talking about. The people in the room that are like, well, I just kind of give every now and then. No, like, let, let God show up. We believe God's going to show up and be faithful and miraculous to provide. And if he doesn't, we will give you your money back. But we need you to fill out this form so we have your information so we can do that appropriately, right? Um, anyway, so check this out. So we, once again, we want to give practical next steps. So for you, if you're getting comfortable, don't give. Don't feel the need to give for this. Get comfortable. Hang out with people in the church. Hang out in this place and understand that you can be praying for the financial needs of the church. If you're a person that's kind of invested in this community, we just ask that you would take next steps. Maybe that's beginning to tithe right off the bat. Maybe that's filling this out and believing. And if you fill this out, there is no shame in that. I just want to say that right now. This is a win. If we have multiple people filling these bad boys out, you know what that is? It's a win because we're going to see and we're going to hear testimonies of God's faithfulness on the other side of this. Come on, somebody. Amen? Amen. Okay. So, in closing, um, I want to bring it back to, to, to we kind of talked about these spiritual things. We've kind of talked about these big ideas. I want to bring it back to the, just the personhood, the humanity level of why we kind of do what we do. And um, it has to do with why are we doing this? Why are we fasting? And it really has to do with how we view others, right? How do we view other human beings? In what direction is your life headed? What kind of human being are you becoming, right? What are you being transformed into? I love Dallas Willard, we're going to end on another quote in, in his book, Spirit of the Disciplines. He says this, if we still think and convey by our behavior that in some way we are fundamentally different and better as persons from the man sleeping in the discarded boxes in the alley, we have not been brought with clear eyes to the foot of the cross, seeing our own neediness in light of it. We have not looked closely at the lengths to which God had to go to reach to us. We have not learned to live always and thankfully in the cross's shadow. Jesus did not send help. He came among us. More than anything, we got to come along people. We got to come alongside people. We got to recognize our generosity, our fasting, our setting apart time in our schedule to intentionally fast and to give represents God's heart because he is generous and he pursues us even when we choose not to pursue him. But all that does is begin to leverage our lives when we get closer to him to come alongside, to fast, to give, to understand that the object of God's love is each and every human being. 
that as our church's goal, adopt anyone and everyone into the genuine and active love of Jesus. We are after everybody. And here's what I know. As we fast and we give this week, God is going to allow this to catalyze and catapult us into the future like we never thought before. Amen.